You're listening to Building the Village, a show that focuses on how different villagers are making an impact in the villages where they serve. Each episode features insights and practical strategies that you can use to motivate teams, mentor individuals, and maximize time and talent. I'm your host, Dr. Brandon W. Jones, founder and speaker at B. Jones Speaks, LLC. Thanks for tuning in. All right. Welcome, everybody, to episode four of Building the Village. As usual, I'm your host, Dr. Brandon Jones, and I'm excited because we have a very special guest with us today in none other than Dr. Shauna T. Sobers. Listen, Dr. Sobers is a dancer, a speaker, an author, an educator, just all around amazing person that you want to know. One of the things that I say about Dr. Sobers on campus is that she's one of the best kept secrets at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, because every time I mention her name, people are like, she sounds amazing. Why haven't we met her before? And I'm like, oh my gosh, y'all got to connect and meet her. And, And Dr. Sobers never, ever disappoints. And so I'm really excited to have Dr. Sobers on the show. Dr. Sobers, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I have to say a little Aloha. Aloha. Welcome. Yeah. Glad to have you today. Are you you ready to talk to the people? I'm ready. Awesome. Well, listen, what we're going to do is I'm going to let you introduce yourself to the audience and let them know a little bit about yourself. And then we're going to dive into these questions that I have for you. And I got quite a few of them. So why don't you just let them know a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you come from, and all the things that make you, you. All the things that make me me. Wow. Okay. So I was born in Barbados. So I I definitely identify as a Caribbean American Mm -hmm. and I'm proud of my Bayesian roots. I was my, I, I named my hometown as New York city. Mm -hmm. So the big apple for many, many years I lived there. Um, And what made me me my undergrad was at Bucknell University. Go Bison. Now tell the people where Bucknell University Bucknell is. Bucknell is in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, um, in the middle of like Amish country. Okay, okay. Now, or a town over from Williamsport, if you know where the minor league baseball happens. So it's like three hours from every major city. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's Bucknell. Um, and there I was uh, a really active student. I minored in dance and I majored in economics and I did all the things. I feel like that was a really, really great foundation um, for where and who I am today. I would also say, just going back to New York real quick, is I also went to Central Park East Secondary School. We call it SPES. Um, and that was also foundational for me as well, because that is a different type of school, like, um, what they would call in California charter school or in New York, I think it was just called an alternative school, but it was a public school, but it was focused on Debbie, Debbie Meyers, um, philosophy of teaching, which was about going more in depth. Mm -hmm. And so we brought, classes together. So it was ninth and 10th grade. So this is the high school, right? Secondary school. So it was ninth and 10th grade had classes together and 11th and 12th graders had classes together. 
and we did things based on portfolio mm-hmm. and we had to present by the end in order to graduate we had to have 14 portfolios done seven of which we had to present to a committee so it was almost like uh, a thesis or masters or you know those sort of things and the curriculum was based on like so we would have classes math and science together or humanities together. So it was more about the concepts and going in depth and less about, um, you know, the structure of the typical class day. So we would go to like Six Flags Great Adventures in New Jersey for a class trip and they would say, okay, this is physics, like design, now go design a a ride. Mm -hmm. And like we would design roller coaster ride and then we would learn about buoyancy for me I, I designed a water ride because that's my favorite and so <laughs> like buoyancy and like all these different things so that we can really dive deep into these concepts and less about you know just knowing all the things to know it so I, that was truly truly um a great foundation for who I am today was spes um so and then and then second to that certainly Bucknell and all of the the activities that I did there. Um, you did mention that I am a dancer and I did mention my minor in dance. But again, going back to New York, um, my mom put me in Harlem School of the Arts dance. Oh, tell us about that. Please Harlem tell us School about that. And so this was ballet, tap, jazz, what they would call at, like African dance or they called it ethnic at the time. It's like ethnic dance. Um, and piano and all of these things to, I think it was really, um, to keep me busy cause she's a working mom. Right. So that kind of helps. Um, but like, shout out, to mom, though. Shout, out yeah, to mom, shout out to, shout out to the working moms, um, out there. Um, but also, you know, to keep me busy and off the streets, cause there's so many things you can get into, um, in a big city. And so every Saturday I was in many, many hours of all the different um, dance and piano and music. I don't know where she got all that money from. She was working overtime for real um, to like pay for all of that. And yes, I I definitely think that that is a foundation for me too, of the discipline that it takes to go from not knowing something, the shyness uh, of performing so I was performing at a young young age, and so having to hone a craft and then get on stage and showcase it to others. So that's definitely in my DNA from mm-hmm. from a kid, um, and just sticking with my New York stuff. Okay, so because there's there's some things that you might not know about either. Um, oh, is, bring it on then! Come on. Yes, I went to survival camp. Did you know this? And I so, did not know that about you, Doctor Sobers. Krista. Christadora, um, uh, Christadora, man, we go to Manus education camp. And this was a program specifically designed to get um, inner city youth into, uh, it was like Vermont and Massachusetts. And we would go hiking. And this would be like five and six days out on the Appalachian Trail hiking, like backpack, you like you carry everything that you need with mm-hmm, you, hiking mm-hmm. um, and canoeing, and just learning how to dig latrines and identify trees and 
just clearing pathways and all of these things that I'm so surprised how many things I still use from that experience. So parents, if you can send your kids away to summer camp and survival camp, it is beneficial for Mm. sure. Mm. Um, There's just so many lessons that I've learned about nature and the world and myself. Even I learned that I was that I was claustrophobic, sleeping in tents um, and things like that. So just that I think really influenced who I I am because I'm comfortable in environments and in spaces that are. I think that's what allowed me to go to Bucknell in the Mm -hmm. middle of, Mm -hmm. uh, because I was like, I like the open air. I like the outdoors. I like the hills. um, And I can do that and be still identify as a person from the city. And, and that was a nice fusion. And from that I started. So this is kind of how these things all merged is my high school. Once you get to 11th and 12th grade, part of your class day was having an internship and going to work. And so you come into school, you check out and you say, Hey, this is where I'm going. And then you, you, you get placed in internships. You go to the internship all day and then you come back to school at the end of the day mm-hmm. and you like do reflection and report it. so like one day a week, it was like internship day. And one of my internships, because of this, um, Chris Dora and Manus experience, many of my internships had to do with the environment. And so I I consider myself really early on as an environmentalist. And I worked at the Museum of Natural History. um, And then I went into a program there where I was doing after school stuff um, in the education department. I worked with the United Nations and put on conferences Hmm. before video conferencing. I mean, this is in the the like 90s, right? So it's like before video conferences was big, we were communicating with other students from across the world about environmental things and hosting scavenger hunts around the museum to educate the youth. We, we, we put on a conference called Youth Can. And that was the first time that I spoke in front of 500 plus uh, whoever was streaming mm. people and worked with people, um, you know, folks who were in the United Nations and on some of the, like the three, two, one contact show, yeah. like yeah. those hosts and things like that. I would work with them uh-huh. to put on these events and, and, and kind of teach my, um, teach my teachers sometimes uh, about some of the things that, that were, were going on. So I was really involved in that. And then I got, um, uh, an internship that then turned into a job at Children's M- Museum of Manhattan, CMOM. And there I taught um, uh, recycling. I would teach the kids how to make paper. I would teach the kids how the how water comes from the Catskills into, um, you know, our, our plumbing. And we had these things where they could tactile things that they could like learn about this. Um, there were slides and things that were really like an ear so mm-hmm. that we do the education around how hearing works, but it's like slides and climbing and, and all of that stuff. So I worked there for a number of years in, in high school because of these programs that were made available to me. And I definitely think that that influences who I am today um, as, as who, who and what things were part of my village Mm-hmm. Um, and part mm-hmm. of my my education 
um, and part of my identity. Um, definitely. Uh, so Look, let's, uh, let's, you know, I'm not going to let you let that go too soon because you, cause you just dropped a lot of things in there that I want to make sure that, I, that our audience uh, doesn't miss. So what I'm hearing is that you, I mean, knowing you the way I've, I mean, I've known you coming up on four years this coming week, uh, know you for about four years now. Um, and all the years of knowing you, I just learned like a bunch of new things about you. But also, as we were talking, I replayed some of our conversations and some of the interactions we've had through the years. And I'm like, well, that makes perfect sense now. And so what I'm hearing is you became Dr. Sobers because of experiences within your village. And I know sometimes when we talk about building the village, a lot of the times we tend to focus specifically on people. We tend to focus specifically on resources. But what I'm hearing from you is that it was the experiences that helped shape who you've ultimately become. Because remember, folks, we got dancer. You understand where the dance was born now. We've got author, which we're going to get to in just a second. And then you've also got educator. You've been educating from what I'm hearing pretty much since high school. And I love how your high school is set up because your high school basically is set up like, yeah, go, you're going to be in the classroom and then you're going to go practice it in the world. You're going to come back and reflect, but then you're going to go back and practice it in the world. And I love that about that experience. Do you feel as though um, at that time you knew how beneficial the your high school experience really was going to be in the long run? Uh, I want to say no, um, partially no. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, my mom intentionally picked that experience for me. Oh. She knew what she was doing. Okay. I, didn't want, I did not want to go to SPES. Um, I wanted to go to some gateway program that I got invo- uh, got uh, applied to and mm-hmm. got accepted to. And she knew my cousin had gone there since first grade because it's they have sister schools, um, CPE one and, you know, things like that. And so my my cousin had gone there. And so she knew the benefits of the school. Mm-hmm. and and work to get me in there. And and this was the moment that I knew that college was not a question. She said, she was like, okay, I understand that you don't want to go here or you don't like my choice. But she was like, I'll pick high school. You can pick college. Okay. And I was like, what? I, or I guess I'm going to college. You know, it's just like that in that moment, that's when I realized that. And and that's an important like question that I ask when I lead privilege walks of was college an expectation of you um, or was it talked about as something that was possible for you or that you could do? Or, you know, was it something that you had to like get from outside of your maybe family circle Um and 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 that was the moment where I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to college <laughs> because mm-hmm. I get to pick college. And I did. I get I got to pick Bucknell. Um, and um, yeah, so Spess, uh, there's a movie that is uh, features Spess programs. So when you hear about programs in the inner city that have to do with uh, their violin program, they mm-hmm. taught these students about violin. I think it's like music of the heart or something was the name of the, the movie 
that's from Spess and that's from Debbie Meyer. And when you when you l- listen to or watch like uh, Take the Lead, mm-hmm. though I don't think it was particularly in the school that I was in, but programs like that stemmed from schools like that. And it's it was such a special school that, um, I mean, we, we did science and things that were okay for me to write papers on. And you collected and honed your papers from ninth grade, you would retweak it and bring it back. And I was able to talk about hair perming and really delve into what, so it's whatever the student's interest is that you're allowed to go explore, as long as it relates back to the the rubric and the criteria of the um, portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so people went out and researched marriage and researched, you know, just anything that they were interested in and, and were able to make make it make sense. But it really, it meant that it relies on the student to already be disciplined um, and and self-motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I, I was going and leading sessions and speaking at conferences on behalf of the school because they the teachers liked to take certain students with them when they went to talk about the school to say, mm-hmm. hear from the student themselves. Right, right. So we would fly different places and I would be te- like talking in front of a room full of educators about my education. <laughs> um, that was part of my high school experience. I uh, have a picture, a fond picture that I, um, that I look at in my, in my mom's house and it's it's me and her at um, at a, a presentation that I gave where Michael Eisner, the head of Disney at the time, yeah, yeah. spoke, and also Mayor Giuliani um, at the time spoke. And in between those speakers, I spoke, wow. <laughs> like as a high school student, and I got. Uh, because we were, it was my, uh, my, one of my professors got um, offered to speak. And then again, they brought students in to be able to, to speak on their experience. So I was able to, to do that. And, and then I remember sitting down and people were like, you just outspoke the mayor. Like you, you just <laughs> you know, did such a great job. Right. Um, and so, you know, that, that was, that was all part of my my, my experience. And so now, as you said that you were like part of the village as experience. That's so true because when I became the director of student activities, um, at Whittier college, small private, um, uh, school in, in LA County, at least. Um, and when I was that director, I really made sure that I worked with my students to give them cultural capital. And that's what I believe I was being given. With all of those different experiences, I was given cultural capital that opened doors for me that even if I was still at that time, you know, growing up in a working class um, household, Mm -hmm. and I was given experiences that allowed me to network in circles that my peers would not have been able to be in. 
And so then that gave me um, opportunities to see things and experience things and to know things, to know it, not reading, not only through reading, but from being there and seeing it and experiencing. Mm -hmm. So, and that's an important, if you're going to be able to, um, um, navigate and communicate with people of all different backgrounds. You need to have some of those common experiences that you can build on with these exchanges. Um, and so when I was a director, that was really, really an important piece for me of making sure that when I plan trips, that I was planning trips to things that some of those students had never experienced, mm-hmm. to professional athletic games, to operas, to musicals, and then not only going to them, but then setting up opportunities where um, the faculty in residence, we would have meetings prior to, or like receptions and programs prior to, where they would be able to say, this is what you're going to experience. This is what like turning the lights down in a theater means, or this, the opera is going to be in this language, but this is what the story is so that they knew what to look for mm-hmm. and what to expect so that they can stop worrying about this other stuff, the noise and really be present in the moment. So creating spaces that allowed them to be comfortable taking in this new information that we were giving them. So you put so them I, in position to be, so so instead of saying welcome to college or welcome to this new, possibly overwhelming environment and experience, you said, hey, I'm going to show you how to be successful in this environment long before you get there. I, sometimes I think that's the part of the mistake that we make in higher education though. When you say like we, we, we get in there and it's like we'll recruit students from all over the world and then we're shocked that they're not successful at our institutions. And it's like, but wait a minute, don't you have data and information on where you're recruiting these students from, the neighborhoods that they're coming from, the success rate of students from this school or that city that you're recruiting? And then we're shocked when they get here. And what you are, are, are telling me and what you're telling the audience is that by not just dropping them into an experience and hoping they get out of it because hope's not a strategy, but you're saying, hey, I'm going to take you to this place. I know it's out of the norm. It may be uncomfortable, but here's what you're going to encounter. Here's what you can do when that happens. I really like the fact that you you took the time to reflect on your own experience going from the city into a smaller college setting and then back to the city and exposing these kids to something that they they probably didn't even think they had access to like did you did they see the transform do you feel like they felt or saw the transforming power of those experiences like yourself um hopefully uh and i think maybe not in that moment but maybe upon reflection later mm-hmm um, they, they would recognize that. And, and mind you, that was a small private minority serving a Latino serving institution. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I really identified with those students and the work that I did there was so, so powerful. And I'm still in contact with many, many of those students. Um, so I know that those ones that I'm for sure are still in contact with, um, they got it and they recognize that, a lot of the time, the experiences that they're getting outside of the classroom within college 
is what has shaped them and prepared them best for what they're doing now. Um, and doesn't, doesn't mean that what's happening in the classroom isn't important because there's room for that too. Right. But sometimes I think, especially because that was like 50-50 commuter student and residential student, but sometimes those commuter students and commuter um, colleges and universities can sometimes miss out on this powerful opportunity because they're just going into class and then going and then leaving again. Mm -hmm. And what we were able to do was provide opportunities to allow commuter students to get some of these experiences when they were on campus. Cause I know there's, you know, other things pulling them and other jobs and other things like that. Um, but we didn't, we didn't have things on sale only when residential students were there. We intentionally made sure that we put things on sale online. That's why we, we went to OrgSync mm -hmm. to allow things to be more um, accessible to our commuter students to know what was going on, to know and be able to plan better when to come back to campus or how to get involved in some of these things. Um, and, and we would plan some of those reception type things during the lunch hour or during the breakfast hour. I shifted some of the times of some of those things to happen, intentionally thinking about, hey, if I'm a commuter student, sometimes I can't stay evenings mm -hmm. and everything is in the evening. So just thinking about like what you're talking about is think paying attention to the population and adjusting how we deliver it. So that people, ultimately, what you're doing is trying to expand people's villages and yes. what they who, and who they see as possible for uh, who can be in their village and what can be in their village. Um, you're you want them to have a sense of belonging, and how else do you feel belonging if people aren't walking alongside you, helping you know this is okay, this is typical, this is normal, this is. Um, this is the definitions for things. This is the language to use. That's not only within education, because there's so many acronyms, but mm -hmm. that's also in the world beyond. And I tried really hard to do that town gown thing. We had a up like uptown um, was our downtown, um, but it was called Uptown Whittier. And, you know, trying to collaborate with the, the, the stores and have them as part of the experience of, uh, of going to college. And even with, I was the advisor for student government. And even with our student government, I added people to their village and saying, Hey, you need to have a faculty advisor as well as a staff advisor, mm -hmm. um, because you need to know, um, get to know faculty members outside of the classroom and get to know their interests and, and, and get to know what else they can offer as well as I had them going to council city council meetings and so it's like let's just sit in on city council because what they do in the city is going to impact what happens with the school what yeah. they do on the street is going to impact you and so just opening up their eyes to what they so many times students don't realize their power say that one more time please <laughs> students don't realize their power. They have so much power. Mm -hmm. And especially when they come together and collaborate and communicate about their experience, then they can share, this is what we need. This is what we want. This is, you know, who we want at the table with alongside us in that community. 
Um, and there's, there's so many times with when us as staff can't do things, even though we know that it's necessary um, until a student or a student organization or a group of student organizations together collectively say, this is what we need. This is what we want. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now we can, you know, be uh, engage, engage with them alongside them to make that happen for them. Um, and that's, that's truly the power of, of the student, but you wouldn't recognize your power if you don't organ, um, understand how the organization works and it, and how are you going to understand how the organization works unless someone's sharing that with you um, or you have had experiences other places that allows you to decode what's in front of you? I often start off my relationship with student organizations or supervisory um, or new professionals with let's take a look at the org chart and let's mm-hmm. like let me explain to you. I mean, you know this from working with me. Let me explain to you who's in the room and who reports to who and what their interests might be and how that might impact how you want to be engaging with them. Um, or I, I remember there was one moment where a student said to me, people always come in the room and they just say their title. I don't know what that title means. That means nothing to me. What, who, what's the difference between the dean and the associate dean and the mm-hmm. assistant dean and the vice president, the senior assistant vice president? Yep. And I was like, yeah, that I mean, unless someone has explained to you the hierarchy of professorship or of administrators, the assistant or associate or full-time professor or senior, whatever it is, they don't know what that means in terms of who's reporting to who. So we need to, or at least I try to, unlock the doors. Mm-hmm to the communities and in, in your for your podcast to the different villages so that they can have a broader network of possibilities. Talk about open the door, open the window, like, you know, slide through the bookcase mm-hmm. and be able to feel like I belong here. It's okay for me to be here. Um, I feel seen and heard and empowered here. Um, and, and my voice though it may be different, um, though it may be alone right now in this moment, is powerful and important and necessary um, and impactful for my generation and generations beyond. Let's stay there because what I want us to do is take that and I want to transition us to the work that you do uh, with uh, Clifton Strengths uh, for the for our audience, uh, you're a and correct me if I say this wrong. You're a Gallup certified strengths coach, correct? Correct. So f- for those of us that for, and, and and I'll give Dr. Sobers a chance to talk about what that what 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 the strengths finder is and why it's so important. And it's one of the many reasons I wanted Dr. Sobers uh, on this show because. I know that back in like maybe 2003 and 2004 in higher education uh, specifically, everybody was like, we got to do Strengths Finder. Everybody, all the RAs, all the teachers, all the schools, all the deans, we took the assessments, uh, we got our signature themes, we put them on our doors. That was the end of it. No, no real debriefing. No. Hey, how do I use this to show up in my job? 
uh, hey, should I be comparing my themes to somebody else? And we did that in higher ed, and it almost somebody on Twitter a couple of months ago said it became cult like at one point, and it was just like we're a strength school, and it's like, oh, okay, no, we just hang the themes on our door, and I I, I wanted you on because one. Let's talk through the myths of, of, of the Clifton Strengths assessment and also talk about the benefits of knowing your themes, not just at work, but in life and at home and with your spouse and your partners and with your kids. Dr. Sobers, break down the, the Strengths Finder first. And then let's dive into the like why this is so important. Like this is where we're gonna nerd out, folks. So if you want to get up and get coffee, uh-uh. this will be me and Dr. Sobers uh, nerding it out right here because this is this, this is this is where the rubber's gonna meet the road, folks. So stay stay glued in. No, we're nerding out. So get the popcorn and sit even closer. This is this is when we nerd out. So. Wow. Yeah. So a couple of things um, that I want to to talk about before I fully answer your question. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing the pre-work, the setting it up. Go for it. Um, the reason why you all experienced in higher ed, everyone doing it in 2002-2003 is because the strengths finder or strengths quest in higher education the strengths finder was the assessment and the strengths quest was the philosophy specifically to college um, and higher education. Mm-hmm. But the reason by that came about was that in 2000 is when the assessment was started. Okay. Prior to that, it was all done through interviews. Um, and, and then they came up with the idea of, okay, we can, we can make this bigger and make this more accessible if we use this thing that they're talking about, the internet, um, and <laughs> um, and like create an assessment that like that people can take, and so that that's it really launched in 2000. But the strengths movement had started way way before that, mm-hmm. um, and you know it just really got introduced to higher education at that point in time in 2003. Um, is when I started my master's program. And, and so um, I started my master's at Azusa Pacific University, which has the Knoll Strengths Academy in it now. It didn't okay. at the time. Okay. But one of the people that worked alongside the namesake of now Clifton Strengths is no longer called Strengths Finder or Strengths Quest. It's now called the Clifton Strengths mm-hmm. or the Clifton Strengths for Students. Those are the the names now. But one of the people that worked alongside Don Clifton to bring strengths to higher education specifically was Edward Chip. He went by Chip Anderson. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the co-authors on the book StrengthsQuest. Um, And guess who was the person who trained me when I got to Azusa Pacific University? Was it Don Clifton? Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't Don Clifton. Oh. It was Chip Anderson. Ah, okay. I always assumed, I'm not going to lie, I always assumed you were mentored by Don Clifton, actually. No, no. But the person who started off as an academic advisor, and um, and it's so funny because the very start of the book, Strengths Quest, which is no longer in print, 
but Strengths Quest to discover and develop your strengths in academics, career, and beyond. The very first sentence in this book was, I was wrong. Mm, unpack that. I was wrong. And that's because Chip had been uh, following what he knew before, which was um, a, a deficit model, as it were, uh, for- Ooh, We got to come back to that, please. Okay. For educating students. It was saying, hey, everyone is at this point. I see that maybe you're not at that point. So maybe you don't measure up. So now you need remedial classes or pre-summer stuff to let, like Y'all get you. know all about that. You speaking to my audience. Come on, come on, right. unpack that, come on. So, but what happened was when you tell someone that, you're telling them what they don't have. Right. And you're telling them not only what they don't have, but they need to focus more on the thing that they don't have mm -hmm. and spend more time on the thing that they don't have or haven't been privy to. And so they come in with low confidence already. And how can you be successful when you're already coming from that place mm -hmm. um, where you're like, it feels like people are way ahead of you. You're way at the bottom and you're trying to play catch up. Well, that's going to be really, really hard to, to educate and motivate and engage students in that way. And okay. so once Chip met Don and this idea he was like, we need to bring this to higher education. So Chip is now known as the father of the strengths movement within higher education. Mm -hmm. So I affectionately consider myself the daughter of <laughs> the strengths movement um, within higher cool. education. And um, and so that that really shifted. So back up for a second again and know that the philosophy behind Clifton Strengths is one question that Don asked after he came back from World War II. He was a, a philosophy student um, or psychology student rather at University of Nebraska, which is now where headquarters are for Gallup. And he was a, a World War II pilot. And so after seeing all the war, all the destruction, all the, the deficit, mm -hmm. <laughs> and he came back to school, what he realized was, um, they were studying in his programs and in all of his classes, they were studying people who were sick to inform how to make people better and how to advise people on wellness. Mm -hmm. And he was like, this doesn't make sense. I need, I like, what if we answer the question, what is right with us rather than focusing on our weaknesses or what's wrong with us? And that has, that shifts everything. So now when Don says, if you want to produce excellence, you must study excellence. If you want to be excellent at something, then do what you already do well and spend most of your time in that place mm -hmm. because that's where you're going to exponentially see more growth and development versus what you were saying, like, what are some of the myths? Some of the myths is that that everyone has to be able to do everything. Come on now. And that is not the case. It's not. People are uniquely designed by our creator. He knew what he was doing. 
to do, to think, feel, and behave in a certain way. We are wired innately to do, think, and feel in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that way of being wired helps not only you and what you desire to do, but also what you're called to do for the community. Those strengths are able to do both of those things. And I often will lead the workshop and say, okay, what's something you're proud of or what's a success or what's a vision that you have for yourself? And you put these things in circles and you will soon recognize, I'm like getting goosebumps, right? You will soon recognize that you are designed on purpose to be able to do and think and feel and react and respond to things that you need to do and that you want to do. Yes. So poor assumptions that we already have. Yes. You can learn most, if not all, behaviors to a level of excellence. Mm. Unpack that for them because there's somebody out there that's listening to this right now. They're they're, they're coaching an athletic team. They're raising children and, and or they are millennial like me. And they're out there saying, yeah, we just we can do it all. We can do everything like and we can be excellent at every last thing. Unpack that for us, Dr. No, no that's not true. I'm going to keep going and then I'll, I'll get to it. So good, like, good, 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 good. hold on. And if and if I haven't gotten to it, then call me out. I know you will already. The next poor assumption is if you try hard enough, you can master anything. And then the last one is, I mean, there's many, many, but the last one I'll talk about is fixing weaknesses is what leads to success. So the conventional approach to development is identify what you need to improve on and then develop a plan to improve it. That has, that's where we were. Mm Mm-hmm. The strengths-based approach is focusing on developing the talents that are already innately in you. And the talent is um, defined specifically as a naturally reoccurring pattern of thought, feeling, and behavior that is productively applied. And so developing a person's talent into strengths and managing weaknesses. So some people think, oh, we're talking a strengths philosophy. It means, oh, just focus on your strengths and like uh, ignore the weaknesses. No, that's that's not going to work either. You have to manage the weaknesses to a certain point and then give the rest of your time, effort and energy into what you already do well. So the flip is you identify your talents and then you develop them into strengths rather than in like identifying your improvement areas and then coming up with a plan. Mm -hmm. So here's the new, you know, paradigm that, that this philosophy puts into place. You can learn only some behaviors to a level of excellence, not all, but some. Yes, you can learn things at excellence, but it can't be everything. It's kind of reminding me of like, you know, if everyone kind of that superhero thing, mm-hmm. I think it's like if everyone has super superpowers, then like no one does, because then it like what was unique about that, right. what's super about that. It's just powers. It just is. And so this is recognizing and identifying 
that everyone has talent, everyone has something that's special about them that they can take to a level of excellence. Not everyone can't do everything. Right. We all, and that kind of goes back to we all need each other mm. in the village. <laughs> like we need independence. To, yeah. We need to be a village to be able to do, you know, big, bigger and bigger things. The second piece is people contribute best in very unique ways. So it was first, you know, if, if, if you try hard enough, you can master everything. No, people contribute best in very unique ways. And the last piece is fixing weaknesses prevents failure, but building strength is what leads to success. So if you focus on fixing your weaknesses, Rather than the original thought, which was, oh, fixing weaknesses lead to success. No, fixing weaknesses prevents you from failing in that particular thing. And you can get to mediocre. But building on your strength is what's going to allow you to lead to success. Mm -hmm. So hopefully I've answered. No, no, no. You've definitely come because you came back because I wrote it down to come back because I would have forgot because I would have got caught up in the conversation. Uh, You you came back to the we can't master everything because, you know, then you'll get nothing done. Then there's the I love what you said about it being productively applied, because I I told a group of students during one of our student leadership conferences uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, Bishop T.D. Jake said a couple of years ago, it said effort does not equal impact. Just because you spent forever in a day doing the thing doesn't mean it's going to have the impact that you desire. And that's the same thing about mistakes that we like to hang on to. Just because we spent forever in a day making it doesn't mean we need to hang on to it. And so I love what you talked about with the productive application, but also you set some people free here or you sh- you gave some people the tools to be liberated here because you said some, not all. That should be freeing to somebody because a lot of us have bought into this mindset that I've got to do everything. I've got to master it. Everything in my domain, I've got to master. And it's like, that's exhausting. There's a reason why originally, even though there's 34 talents that are being measured in the assessment, they only give you your top five. Yep. There's a reason for that. Because we tend to, in our society, have a deficit model, right? We look mm-hmm. at what we don't have, what we're lacking, what we're missing, where we need improvement, and that's where we focus mostly. The child brings home an A, an A, a B, and an F. We're like, why do you have this F? Da, 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 da. Licks, licks for you mm-hmm. um, back in the old school days. Not right, now. not today. Of course not now. Um, but what, what this is saying is... Um, it doesn't mean ignore the F that still needs attention, but rather let's look at the A first and, and ask some questions around that A, you know, what was the environment like that made it so that you were able to learn what was interesting to you about that subject or that, that way of teaching or whatever it is. And then we, we, we can then be able to apply that learning Mm-hmm. to the place where there's an F. 
instead of saying you have that F and now you need to like only do the classes <laughs> that um, like don't focus on those things that you're good at, that brings you joy, that brings you energy that you like get really quick. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. Spend most of your time over here in the F. Um, and so it's like, no, let's bring up the F to at least a passing by um by using the things that we've learned from the places where we do well. And let's bring those things into that environment. So if I'm really um, talkative, a lot of the times the things that people get as their um, strengths mm -hmm. are the things that they might have gotten written up for or get in trouble for as a child Hello. or might have gotten teased about. And so they're like, oh, you know, Shauna is very talkative in class that, you know, I was my nickname was Chatterbox. Right. And so it's John is very talkative in class. And so then then the child might then learn from that. I need to be quieter. I, and so then they're learning to be something that they're not or to try to be something they're not or to have some strengths envy in a, in a way of like, oh, that's more valued in this cultural in this setting. Mm -hmm. So I need to do that. And they need, they'll start to put focus and time and it's effort and attention and maybe like judgment on themselves. That self-talk kicks in and they've heard so many people in their village say those things that then they mm -hmm. believe it's true. And then when you take this assessment and it is saying, this is what's good in you and where you have potential. And they're like, no, that's the thing that I've been trying not to do. Mm -hmm. And that that's the power of this is like like strengths are neutral. It's not good or bad. It's about how we apply it. It's about how we understand it. It's, it's about, it's about whether we're, we're able to be aware of what we do, how we do it and how we feel about it mm -hmm. and, and take it for what it is. It just is. And then we can choose whether to chastise it or judge it or blame it or, you know, put it aside, but at least we are aware of what it is. And that is a tool that can be used for good and can be the very thing that is needed in a group or organization. Uh -huh. When we say we need a speaker to stand up on that stage and talk, mm. well, it's probably going to be that person that was in your classroom that wanted to talk. And so that's going to be necessary. So allow that person to be excellent in that thing that they're already good at and help them manage the weaknesses. So now let me just say, sometimes for our leaders, the very place where you make mistakes is in your area of strength because that strength might have the shadow side or the dark side of the force, force for my Star Wars fans. Yeah. Um, so I can recognize, hey, I get it. They were disruptive in the class. They do need to learn how to manage that talent. Um, and they can learn how to do that. I remember this story of Will Smith, who was a class clown. Mm -hmm. um, and that teacher saw that, hey, you like to get up in front. You like to kind of, in a way, maybe he has woo. I don't know. Um, but, you know, um, he would get up in the class. And so the teacher made a deal with him and they said, okay, if you can sit quiet and not disturb the other students for the whole day, I will give you the last 10 minutes of class to, you know, to kind of do your shtick, do your stand up. 
And so he was able to manage, recognize, hey, I, I have this urge to do this, but I'm going to maintain it for now because I know that in this other space, I'm going to let it go mm-hmm. and I'm going to hone it. And that, you know, and that teacher, that, you know, parents like that, that now there's strengths-based classrooms and there's strengths-based parenting books and strengths-based marriage books. Um, and there's, there's um, discovery is the assessment that, that you take. Um, or that that um, students take in middle school um, or or a little bit of high school where you're not having the students take it necessarily, especially when they're really, really young, but you yourself are aware of what the talents might look like. And then you're being observant of those and then you're honoring those and putting them in spaces to be able to continue to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the ways that that last uh, part though, that last part, putting people in spaces where they're able to do the thing. My kindergarten teacher, God rest her soul, Miss Jan Garrett, um, with, with, I got in trouble from kindergarten through 12th grade for talking. Surprise, surprise. Um, but it's funny when I got to college, I tried to rebrand and be quieter. And the more I suppressed it, the more miserable I was. But in kindergarten, even in kindergarten, my kindergarten teacher found a way that early to take all that energy and to take all of that talkativeness and go, you know what, Brandon, you want to be in the in, in, in this reading group? Brandon, you want to be the first person to spell the words? Do you want to lead the Pledge of Allegiance today? Which I gladly took every chance I got. And she found a way to externally reward and use that as motivation for me, kind of like with Will Smith, to take all of that and redirect. Now, I got in trouble. Let's, let's, my mom and dad <laughs> got sick of, like, why are the grades so good but conduct, like, I didn't cuss nobody out. I didn't fight. It was... He just talks. He just talks and he just talks until finally you get to a grade where they go, yeah, he can't be in regular classes. He needs to be an IB or AP because then you're too stressed out to talk because if you're talking, you're missing the lessons. But I love what you said about putting people in the environments where they get to show up and do the thing that they do. Can you reiterate why that's important? Because I've got athletic teams that listen to this podcast. I've got parents and families uh, that listen to this. And clearly the first three uh, guests, also black women, by the way, um, were are, are very special people who do very special work. Uh, Brittany and my wife, Melissa, both uh, social workers. Uh, and then, of course, Jen Fry doing the social justice education work. And then you, Dr. Sobers, uh, being a strength certified coach. Uh, being an educator and also the the host of things that you do, why is that so important to do for, to do that for people? Why? Please tell us why. Hmm. Why indeed? Why not? <laughs> yeah, um, I agree. Why? Why not? But uh, it's what I what I hear from your your recap and paraphrasing is this the power that's in again, just going back to belonging and feeling like it's okay to be who you naturally are. Mm-hmm. And so it's important for people to, to hear that, to be affirmed. Um, Gallup puts out the book, How Full Is Your Bucket? And it really talks about how as you walk through the day, 
you can either, you know, pour into someone or be poured into, or you can take away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when you're talking about these situations and opportunities that we could um, set people up for success by affirming um, and giving feedback, a lot of times people hear feedback and they think it has to be something critical and negative and something that they need to change. Feedback can also be positive and saying, I like how you did that. And th- these are the, the specific things about how you analyze that or how you emoted and talked about the feelings around that or whatever the c- case may be, because what you talk about and what you give feedback about is what people will remember and what they will stick to and what they will continue to work on. Mm-hmm. And so the messages that we hear, if they're all critical and all what we need to stop doing or not do or no, 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 then that leaves us really like confused about who we are and what we're about and um, and all of those things. So I really enjoy strengths because it gives this common language about what we do well and 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 how to develop it. So what's interesting about Clifton Strengths is that once you've taken the assessment, um, your results are the beginning of the journey, not the end. Because you kind of talked about it. it's like, yeah, we got our results. We put them on our walls. Like we put it on the shelf. We read the report once. We did a workshop once. And then we're like, check that off the list. You know, like put it, you know, stuff it away. It's done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's not how the philosophy works. How it works is those results is the talent, not the strength. You didn't get there yet. The equation that you need for development is talent multiplied by investment. And the investment could be knowledge, skills, but also your background, your experiences, you know, who's surrounding you, like putting time into thinking intentionally about how to make this talent really great. Is that when that's the place where then you get to the strength, which is uh, the ability to near perfectly provide consistent performance. Yes. Yes. Right. And so how, like how or why is it necessary to focus on this or necessary to put people in spaces or places to be able to do that is so that they can develop their potential. Um, they can recognize it. They can talk about it without being the fearful of being seen as arrogant or boastful mm-hmm. or, you know, all of these things that kind of stops us from talking about what we bring to the table and what and what we what we've done and and in you know where we've been because we're like oh well you know that's going to be misunderstood but I can talk easily about what I don't do well and what I need to work on and but you know so it's like this is this is putting on strengths colored glasses and shifting the paradigm to say no how about every time someone frustrates you you choose to look at the situation from a positive intent standpoint, you refrain judgment, and you're and then you ask the question, what is it that they do well? I wonder what they're bringing to the table because I might be looking at them from my lens, my talents, and assuming that everyone thinks and feels and behaves the way that I do, and that is just a common like, 
why why would you think that? Why would you say that? Because mm-hmm. I wouldn't. But they're not wired the same way that you are. You're uniquely wired. And so is someone else. And so they're going to have a different way of doing and being and feeling for everything. And so when something comes that is not the way you would do it or the way you would approach it or the way you would feel about it, for you to pause and think, what are they bringing to the table that's really good that I might, it just is very different from how I would ever do it. And then instead of being on the opposite ends of the spectrum, you then have now invited a partner to your village and an additional way of seeing the world and a co-collaborator in the things where you might need to manage those weaknesses. Then you're going to ask that friend to do or be with you or give advice um, or provide resources around that thing that you might need help on. That's the perfect place to put a pin there because now I want to transition to your work on being a follower. Uh, A couple of years ago, um, I had a chance to listen to you uh, at the National Association of Student Personnel Administrators, NASPA, uh, annual meeting. I believe that was in, that was Philadelphia where you did that speech, right? Okay, so that was in Philadelphia. Same stage as... um, Sotomayor. Yeah, that, yeah, Judge, uh, yeah, Chief Justice, uh, what uh, Sotomayor was there. Yeah, and you, I think you talked about the importance of followership, and the question that I and I, you and I got into this amazing conversation later about. Wait a second, who actually teaches us to follow? We, we all the books are leadership education. All the books are go lead, lead with this, lead with that, lead from your heart, but. I, I don't remember a course, a book, a PowerPoint slide from anybody other than our conversations about following. Can you talk to our audience about the importance of learning to be a good follower and how can we learn that? Because ain't nobody teaching it. Absolutely. Yeah, my my philosophy and my why is that every everyone has the potential to lead and follow. And I and I use that as a distinction because I believe that every leader needs to know when and how to follow. Um, and there's an ebb and, yeah, and there's an ebb and flow to that. Um, and I think I really solidified that through dance um, because ev- even though earlier in my childhood it was like that solo dance, later. Um, in, in my adulthood, I started doing partner dance. And that is a very different story. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why partner dance has specific steps uh, is because you have to be thinking about the other person. And so if you're on the same page with a certain, certain styles have certain foundational steps, Um, the reason why we have counts and we have steps is so that I can know where that other person is going to be. And then I can, you know, make my move based on what, what you're doing. But if it's just all free form, then it's going to be hard to work together in partnership. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about is, Hey, we have all of these foundational leadership classes that tell us about, you know, how to, help someone navigate that. But what I was finding 
um, on my journey of being uh, both a follower in dance as well as a leader in dance um, is that in order to follow well, you need to learn a few things and you need, and it's like a different mindset that, that you're, that you go into and you can improve on following. And some people are naturally talented at that already, but there's certain things that you can do as a follow to follow better. You know, you can make sure that your frame is, is, um, held really well. And in, in my, in my TED talk, um, I really talk about this. It's called Dance of Leadership. Um, and I was in the first, first cohort of um, people to do a TEDx UT Austin. And so that was you know, quite an honor. And I talked about the Dance of Leadership as um, recognizing, I, I really talked about four main areas. One was like knowing, um, knowing how to manage your core. And I talked about core, not only as in, you know, as a dancer, your, your abdominal muscles or your, um, you know, uh, your frame as your arms, but also thinking about it as a leader in leadership land um, and thinking about your core values or what your morals and ethics are. And you need that, a foundation of that so that when someone's in front of you as a potential leader, you can choose whether or not to follow their lead because the leader is really offering uh, a, a proposition to say, hey, I invite you to join me or, or I, you know, I'm encouraging you and giving you signals of, hey, I want to go this way. And that follower doesn't have to, you're not pushing someone around the dance floor, but it is then the follower's choice to allow themselves to be led. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you can't really lead unless you have someone to lead. Um, and, and so that it's really important to, as a leader, know when within the dance even to be able to listen to that person and allow them to take the lead for that moment and then return and then return back to your you know, positions or your titles. So one was about like frame. Um, the other was about core. The, uh, um, another one was about the foundational steps. And so many leaders and followers will try to they look at someone. Again, this is like strengths and, and be a little bit. They look at someone and they're like, I want to do that. And they don't want to put in the work to learn the basic steps before they're trying to freestyle and improv. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you have to first learn the rules before you know how to break them. Because those professionals, they know the basis and they can do it. And then they're making specific choices in how to free flow. Um, and, and those choices are when to lead and when to follow, when to allow the other partner to free to then free flow um, and how to uh, firm up my frame and be stable for them to be able to shine. Because we often talk about dance and lead, leading and following as I'm the, I'm the stem and you're the rose. Um, and then, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, I'm over here being the stem all the time and holding uh, the, the ground um, and holding you so that you're stable and you can do this. But when's my turn? 
And the, the whole point of that is, hey, it's an ebb, it's a flow. We're both able to do both things, but not at the same time. We have to take turns to be able to do that. So that kind of flows back with the strength thing of like everyone's excellent in certain things. And when it's your time where where that's the thing that you flow on, well, hey, uh, I'm going to allow you to do that. I just recently put out a tweet about delegation mm-hmm. and I said delegating is a leader's way of also executing fellowship because you're saying, hey, I'm going to choose who's going to do what. And then I have to sit back and allow you the space and the time and the structure and the support to do it your way, not my way. Mm-hmm. And check in with you, certainly. Um, but then that person then gets a chance to shine and then they come back and they follow up with with the leader. So that ebb and that flow, that dance of leadership, that recognition that going backwards, quote unquote, or staying in place doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong or that something is wrong. That's just all part of the dance. That's part of life um, is sometimes you have to take a step backward or you have to step in place so that you can move around or create different rhythms in what you're doing. Um, so it's about pacing and it's about, you know, rhythm and it's about your, your steps just as well. I know I, I, I talked. No, about no, it. no, no, no. You did exactly <laughs> what I wanted you to do because I mean, because this is your time to shine. Okay. And what I want to, before I let you go, I wanted to give you an opportunity to not only talk about your, your, your work with resilience. For those of you that don't know, Dr. Sobers is a researcher uh, and, and, and I would call an expert on resilience. And so I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about your work with uh, resilience. You can talk about your, your resilience tree model, but also your upcoming, your, your all the books you got out and your upcoming work. I want to give you a chance to just let the folks know some of the things you're up to that, um, you know, ways that they can see all the cool and amazing things that you've got going on. Yeah. So, so yeah. one of my top strengths is achiever. Yeah. Um, so that means that I like to stay productive and set the pace and be very driven and um, do many things and accomplish many things. Um, and so definitely research, um, my dissertation research, but then also the pursuit of um, being a published author is, was definitely on the to-do list that uh, many achievers have a to-do <laughs> list, a running list or multiple lists. Um, and so one of one of the, the things that I was able to do um, with the, the TED Talk and the Essay Speaks is then, you know, publish about it. And so I, I was able to first publish, publish uh, the Footprint of Success, uh, Stories of Impact for Leaders and Entrepreneurs. And it's all uh, self-published through um, self-published in 30 days. Um, shout out to my publisher, Darren Palmer, um, for, for recommending me for uh, being in this co-author book. So it's multiple um, co-authors, kind of like chicken soup for the leader. Um, and so it's like different different stories from different leaders um, about um, about their impact and about how how they they journeyed and things like that. So that was the first book. And that my my chapter in that book is called Advancing in Leadership as a Person of Color. And that 
that chapter, I really gave a preview to the upcoming book that's that's coming out this year um, about my resilience tree model. Um, and so I talk about tokenism and I talk about the different ways that tokenism showed up for me in my journey um, as a black woman, um, cisgender, um, uh, Caribbean uh, identified person, but also a student affairs um, person and how all of those intersections um, manifested in different spaces and how it was seen and how I, I um, you know, kind of just integrated spaces just with my presence and how I was able to stay resilient and thrive in those settings or navigate after a setback. Um, so how was I able to do that? Um, and so, you know, really created a resilience tree model that, that spoke to my experience, but also really lent itself from the, the people that I interviewed. So I interviewed deans and vice presidents uh, of student affairs who were already had been in the field for 10 plus years or been in that role for a certain number of years. And what I did was I defined resilience and success based off of um, them having been in those roles, especially at predominantly white institutions. Mm -hmm. And so I used a positive psychology or strengths-based lens to say, if I wanted to be a leader and I was aspiring to be a dean or a vice president, then the way that, that I needed to get there was not from looking at what I didn't have or what other people struggled with, but by looking at people who were in the role and learning from them their strategies for success of how they got there and how they were able to sustain there. And so that's really what the model is about and what it's based on. And so there's four components to it that have tangible examples um, to be able to say, you know, hey, do you have um, uh, activities in your life that, that refuel you? Do you have the people in your life that believe in you? Do you know when to say no or set boundaries? And do you recognize what you need in an environment to be nourished or does it need to be you know, uprooted and replanted somewhere else? And so I really throughout the book that, that I'm working on right now, I'm telling stories of my own, of people that I've like coached um, as well as my, my participants to be able to say, um, this is a, a, a template for pathways to leadership. It's not a pipeline pipeline because I recognize there's not one only one way to go there. It depends on your unique makeup of your talents and your experiences and your knowledge. Mm -hmm. but pathways, multiple pathways to leadership, not necessarily the thing. So the resilience model I use is com the uh, compensatory model. And really it's not intersecting the thing that is causing you um, to, you know, struggle, but rather it's building you up to be able to withstand whatever it is that comes at you and having enough of those components in your life, in your sphere, intentionally placed there so that then you can keep, keep it moving, keep it pushing and realize that potential. Sounds like a village. Uh, 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 I like the plug. I like the plug. Um, the second book that I published is in a, a book called Visionistas, 
Women Who Think Outside the Box, a collection of inspirational stories. And this was volume two of this book. Again, self-published and in 30 days did that. But this time it was all ladies um, talking about their stories uniquely to that, um, uh, those different intersections of identity. So we're really able to play off of each other and um, have, you know, a nice thread of different ways that we've done that. And in that book, I really um, expand upon the TED Talk and the Dance of Leadership concept and provide uh, some structure for how to do that, how to understand that, how to make sense of that. Um, and so I took a little bit more time in that one. And that chapter was called, let me look it up, it's called Leadership Lessons from Partner Dance. And so that was what that chapter was. The new book is coming out, um, Resilience Tree. Um, and let me see, there's a subheader to that, to that, um, to that book title. I might have had, I might have it on my website. There's my plug. My website is shaunatsobers.com. Uh, and, um, uh, so I might have it on there already. You can already purchase a signed copy of any of my books from there, um, as well as uh, see the, the talks that I've done. Um, but OK, I found it now. So it's the Real Resilience Tree Strategies for Success, uh, Growing Pathways to Leadership for Women of Color and Those Who Support Them. So Growing Pathways to Leadership for Women of Color and Those Who Support Them. So it's not only for those women of color, but it's also for the supervisors, mentors, spouses of those people who want to uplift um, those leaders and be able to recognize when they need help, um, as well as teaching the women how to ask for help and how to accept help. So there's a lot of different components. Can I just give you a sneak preview of some of the chapter titles? You may. Okay. Chapter one, experiences from the executive suite. Okay. Chapter okay. two, roots, what ground you. Chapter three, branches, who believes in your potential. Chapter four, leaves, what share, what, when to share what you produce. Chapter five, environment, can you, can you bloom where you are currently planted? And chapter six, how others can help. So it's almost done. It is so close to, to coming out. Um, so I'm really excited for that. Um, but when, when it does come out, it'll come out both on um, Amazon as well as on shaunatysobers.com um, for, the, for, the for the signed copy. You can get it there. But so excited for that to finally be um, out there in the world. Listen, I'm so excited that you were able to spend your time with us just dropping some major gems. I got two pages of notes here. Um, I, I'm excited. This, this, this is something that I, I've been looking forward to. This is a conversation that I always enjoy having with you. And I hope that the Building the Village uh, listenership uh, views it the same way I do. So we appreciate you, Dr. Sobers. And again, if you didn't hear her, you can go to her website, shaunatsobers.com. That's S-H-A-U-N-A-T, Sobers, S-O-B-E-R-S.com. And you can find out more about 
all the cool things Dr. Sobers is up to. You can follow her on social media. Uh, you can check out her blog. You can order books and you'll get signed copies. Um, you can see all the workshops, testimonials, the types of coaching she offers. You're just going to see all the cool stuff that Dr. Sobers does. So uh, if you don't do anything else, go to Dr. Excuse me, go to shaunatysobers.com to find out more about Dr. Sobers. Do you have any final thoughts or words for the folks? Thank you so much for the opportunity to share. And I always enjoy our conversations. And it's a wonderful, wonderful way that you exemplify how to follow and how to lead because oh. you're definitely a leader and bringing people on here and, and asking questions and allowing them, you know, a space to shine is a beautiful way that, that you do that. So thank you uh, for creating a space for the village to be, um, you know, expanded upon. So mahalo. Ah, and thank you, Dr. Sobers. All right, Building the Village Nation, y'all have a good one and take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building the Village. To catch the next episode, be sure to follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. The show was hosted and produced by me, Dr. Brandon W. Jones, and edited by Lydia Fortuna.